Good evening. I want to take this opportunity to wish a happy Thanksgiving to those of you celebrating this holiday. And to everyone, I want to thank you for allowing me to spend this week with my family. If you are spending the holiday alone, just know I'm thinking of you. Use this time to write letters, get outdoors, volunteer, get in touch with others who are alone. There's a lot you can do. I'm listening to Veritas. You are not alone. Tonight, we have a special encore presentation for you. It's an interview I conducted nine years ago with Command Sergeant Major Robert O. Dean. Bob recently passed away, and this interview is a true classic. I hope you enjoy it. And remember that if you want to participate in our 10-year anniversary show, the deadline to submit your audio with your comments and a question is this Sunday, November 25th, 2018. Go to the member section for instructions. I hope you can make it because our 10-year anniversary is all about you, not me. You made this happen. I'll be back with you next week. And now, here's tonight's classic. Enjoy. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. And yet, I ask you, is not an alien force already among us? Exopolitics, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events. From somewhere in the desert, between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Veritas. Because the truth will set you free. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Force has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I think it's time to open the books on the question of government investigations of UFOs. Uh, we ought to do it really because it's right. We ought to do it because the American people, quite frankly, can handle the truth. And we ought to do it because it's the law. Be skeptical. Do be as skeptical as you want, but by all, don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of the Veritas Show, where we bring you disclosure, one guest at a time. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, make yourself at home. First, I want to welcome and thank our new Veritas members. You are keeping Veritas alive. Tonight's special guest is someone that is known in every international UFO circle. To me, even though we are very fortunate to still have him among us, he is already a legend. 
one of the most respected and sincere men I know, an officer and a gentleman, retired Command Sergeant Major Robert Dean, will be with us shortly. I will discuss and go into plenty of areas that may not have been discussed and disclosed before. So if you're not a Veritas member, this is a great opportunity to stop the audio and become a member so you can listen to the entire two hours of this show. And now, get ready to listen to a man who violates his security oath, not only because he believes the people have a right to know, but because the people have a need to know. UFOs, the military, deep underground bases, extraterrestrials among us, disclosure, and much more. Retired Command Sergeant Major Robert O. Dean has been engaged in the field of UFO research for the last 40 years. He began this research on active duty in the U.S. Army, where he served for 27 years. Additionally, from 1963 to 1967, he served at Supreme Headquarters Allied Powers Europe, SHAPE, NATO, as an intelligence analyst, and it was while he was at SHAPE that he removed a file from a security vault called The Assessment, an evaluation of possible military threat to Allied forces in Europe. According to Robert Dane, the document simply concludes that Earth has been for long under survey from several extraterrestrial civilizations. Robert Dean's current projects are directed toward gaining immunity for ex-military personnel who may shed some light on the UFO issue, enabling them to testify before a congressional hearing without fear of losing their pensions or a prosecution. And from one desert to another, retired Command Sergeant Major Robert O. Dean. Hello, Mr. Dean, and welcome to the Veritas Show. How are you? Well, I'm fine, thank you. It is such a pleasure and an honor to have you on, sir. I have received a request from our audience to interview you all year long. But after your presentation at the Barcelona Exopolitics Summit, I really get flooded with requests, and it's a highlight for me, as well as your fans around the world who are listening. You really opened many eyes there in Barcelona. Why do you think your message and presentation was so powerful? Well, I wasn't aware that it really was that powerful. I, I, I got the impression that I was well-received at Barcelona. It was very gratifying to, uh, to see the turnout there at the conference, and it was also very encouraging to see the number of people who came up after my presentation and uh, not only thanked me, but indicated their own interest in the phenomenon. I find it uh, gratifying that particularly young people seem to be aware. They seem to be paying attention. And uh, that's my hope for our future, that the young the young people will come along and uh, insist on some honest answers from their government and do their own research and literally dig into what I consider to be the greatest story in human history. I... Uh, I must be honest with you and tell you that ever since I got involved with this thing back in 1964, I haven't been able to walk away from it. I, I, I'll be honest. I, I think I actually became obsessed with it when I realized the implications of this thing. The fact that there are advanced extraterrestrial intelligences 
they're literally in our midst, Mel. They they uh, they're all around us, and they've been all around us and involved in us for literally the beginning of our history. And to me, that that that's a hell of a big story, and uh, I can't leave it alone. I can't walk away from it. Hell, I'm going to be 81 on my next birthday, and uh, you know, I've often thought, why the hell don't I sit down and <laughs> retire and be a responsible retired gentleman, smoke my cigars, drink my good bourbon, and uh, to hell with the world. But I can't do it. I, I did that for five years, and I was encouraged and prodded and literally threatened by a lot of friends to get out and start speaking publicly again. I just got back from a a conference in the Bay Area up in San Jose last weekend. And again, I I was encouraged by the response and by the uh, by the fact that many many more people are paying attention, and I I think that's a good sign and it's a hopeful sign. So I'm going to continue. I'm going to continue doing what I'm doing actually, and I'm going off tomorrow to a, a conference in Burbank. That's right. Yeah, they've been sponsored. You know, Carrie and Bill. I th- are you familiar with the? the Camelot Project? Absolutely. They'll be with me in a few weeks to, to do a show with me. Yeah, well, Carrie, Carrie Cassidy and Bill Ryan are delightful people. And they're putting on a conference starting Saturday, the day after tomorrow, in Burbank. And I'm hopeful that the turnout there will be fairly well. And I know that it will. I want to get a question out of the way, Mr. Dean. In your opinion, why has the secrecy about UFOs, the truth embargo, continued for over 60 years. What are the real reasons? Well, there is not a reason, Mel. There are a number of reasons. First of all, when the reality impacted our our military at the end of World War II, it scared the hell out of them, frankly. Our our professional military had just concluded a terrible, terrible war. And uh, they're confronted with this this reality, this undeniable reality that uh, there are an advanced intelligence is here coming from God knows where, and they had no idea what their motives might have been, and uh, they responded with the typical military response, you know. Uh, hey, uh, we're paranoid, so let's <laughs> let's look at the worst possible thing that could happen, and let's try to prepare ourselves for it. And I think that was the initial response. They 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 responded in fear because they really didn't know what they were addressing. And then it became more apparent over the years of of the implications and the scope of what they were really addressing. And that scared the hell out of them more of them, you know. I mean, when you're confronted with uh, intelligences from God knows where. Uh, with advanced technology that was so far beyond anything we had. You know, your your response is to be very cautious. And I think their response was probably normal back then. And then, of course, they they conducted the Brookings study in, uh, what, 1959-60. Right. And that report concluded that... Uh, if we were to encounter advanced extraterrestrial intelligence, 
that the response would probably be not to let the masses know about it. And uh, I think the Brookings Report, which was published and presented to Congress in 1961, I think that Brookings study actually became national policy. And I think to some extent it still is. Is it because it would shatter our paradigms, religions, our science? Is that the the main foundation for the Brookings Institute's report? Well, it won't just shatter <laughs> the foundations of science. It'll it'll shatter society itself if if the true story were to come out. You see, I don't think the true story, the whole story, is going to come out within the next 50 to 100 years, for God's sake. I used to believe, and I, I spent a lot of time and effort and energy uh, over the last 20 years to try to get Congress to pay attention. One of my plans and hopes was to get Congress to pay enough attention to, you know, form some committees, hold some hearings, grant congressional immunity to uh, retirees in particular, and uh, get the story out. Because I believe for many, many years that the American people not only had a right to know the, the truth, they had a need to know the truth. But over the years, Mel, I, I've, my views have changed a little. The more I've learned, and, and the more I've learned of the absolute scope and the vastness of this reality, the more I've concluded that maybe there are masses of people who are not ready for this. Uh, to give you an example, just look look at the theological problem on our planet right now. Good Lord, man, we've got, you know, Muslims butchering Christians and, and Jews and Jews butchering Muslims and Hindus and Muslims butchering each other in India and Pakistan and and then, good Lord, you've even got Muslims butchering Muslims with the Shiites and the Sunnis at each other's throat. Right. You, you, you've got a, um, a worldwide problem here <clears throat> that the last thing they really need is to have something as vast as this reality dumped in front of them. I, I don't know whether the masses of people, Mel, could deal with that. But one could say that if disclosure were to occur worldwide, and their paradigms actually shatter to oblivion, and then all of a sudden their foundations of religion may not be what they were used to. If everything changes and we turn into one, one consciousness, wouldn't that be enough justification to do it? Well, your point is well taken, and uh, from my from my original point when I began this thing, I, I always did believe, and I, I still do believe, that the, the the realization, if people could grasp the realization of, of this whole story and would grasp who they are and what they are as human beings and realize that spiritually we're all the same. We're all human beings with a divine spark within us that uh, I kept thinking that this knowledge itself would... Uh, bring about an expansion of consciousness among the human race that might hopefully bring us together. And uh, that was a dream of mine, and it still is, that uh, the, the day will come when the wars will cease and people will grasp 
that uh, they are brothers and sisters, and uh, we're all one family. We're all one member of the members of one human race. I think that will happen. I don't think it's going to happen in my lifetime, but you know, I'm not going to be around that much longer. But I'm hopeful, and I am very optimistic about the future of the human race. I I think the human race is going to make it, because as I have jokingly said over the years, we've got some good friends in high places. No pun intended. We really do have some uh, advanced intelligences out there that are essentially uh, benevolent. And I think they do seem to care about whether we're going to make it or not. And I think your message resonates so much with the youth because you truly speak from the heart. At your age, you keep moving forward, you keep releasing information and letting us know that the paradigms that we have may not be the reality that we grew up with. But we have MUFON, exopolitics, conferences all over the world. But are we any closer to disclosure or is it the intelligence apparatus feeding us this information? <laughs> you sh it sounds like you may have attended one of my presentations not too long ago. <laughs> I, uh, I, I've, been, I've been having a little fun with uh, some old friends. And I, I put together what I call a parable. The parable of the three Stevens and the apocalypse. <laughs> And, uh, You're not talking about uh, Stephen Bassett, Stephen Greer, or somebody else, right? And, and Steven Spielberg. Uh, okay. And my, my point, Mel, is that, uh, you know, I, I, I know Bassett, and I know Greer, and I've known them for years. And, and they're, they're lovely people. Uh, they're good friends. They were both at the conference with me over in Barcelona. Yes. And, and Bassett and Greer have been, you know, thumping the, the Bible, as it were, to... Uh, to get disclosure, to get the government to hold a news conference, to get the government to tell the truth, uh, demand the government, answer the people's questions, blah, you know, and on and on and on and on. And I, I don't think it's going to happen, Mel, because that's not the way government works. I, ca I cannot even conceive of somebody in government, the president or somebody, you know, saying, hey, guys, uh, we're going to have a news conference here. And we're going to fill you in on some interesting bits of information that we've kind of kept from you over the years. Uh, yeah, how about that? You know, uh, alien intelligences are in our midst, and they've been here for a long, long time. How about that? Now, uh, weather and sports next, you see. Blah, blah, blah. Yes. Hey, no, that ain't going to happen. That's not the way government does things. You don't open the lid on Pandora's box, damn it. Uh, you open it just a little bit, and all the furies come pouring out. You know, the, you know. I think everybody's aware of the old Greek legend of Pandora, and they op she opened the box, and and all the sins and horror and the furies came out, and they've been with us ever since. Well, this this UFO matter. Damn, I hate that word. I hate the word UFO. It's just so inappropriate. Uh, that almost oh, it was makes, made for a reason. That almost makes me as mad as little green men. Yes. And uh, but the point is that's not going to happen. But I will tell you this, and and I've got some pretty good evidence to support this. That the, this the, a disclosure, or at least a form of disclosure, is already underway and has been underway for some time. And that's where the, Steven uh, Spielberg comes in. And I point out to people that. Uh, 
just look at the movies that that young producer has made. First of all, E.T., and then look at Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and then look at the... Uh, War of the Worlds. Look at the series that he put on called Taken. Take, taken, absolutely, that, wonderful. That was on television, I guess, for a number of weeks. Yes. And uh, that, to me, is a form of what I call a subliminal disclosure. I call it subliminal education. It's been underway for some time, and Steven Spielberg was not the only one. Uh, a number of years ago, I had the honor of being invited to be a speaker at a, a Mensa regional conference in uh, Orange County in California. Oh. And I went over there, and, and I was a speaker at this Mensa conference, and uh, the guest of honor was Chris Carter. X-Files. Who was the young producer, uh, director of the X-Files. Yes. And after, after you know, we were, had a cocktail party at Banquet and all, and I pulled him aside and I said, look, Chris, I want you to fess up to me. I've been watching your series and, uh, you know, it's, I'm, fa I'm fascinated. Some of your stories are pretty damn good. Some of them are not so good. But I said, you guys have presented a, two or three stories over the years that are absolutely right on, and they involve highly secret, highly classified government events. Now, I says, where the hell are you guys getting this information? I says, there were three in particular that I pointed out to him that uh, I happen to know were classified and were still classified, and here they are being demonstrated on the X-Files. And I says, where are you guys getting your storylines? Where's where this information coming from? And he, he got a little little grin on his face. He says, yeah, well, we got some fine writers, you know, didn't we? <laughs> right. Yeah, we got some good writers. And I said, sure you have, but don't give me this bullshit. Some of this story, some of these stories are so accurate that you couldn't possibly have come up with these and sitting around a bunch of writers with a bunch of beer. I says, you're getting input from somewhere, young man, and I want to know where. And he, he got a big grin on his face, and he says, hey, stay tuned. You ain't seen nothing yet. And they, they the, the files, I think, the X-Files went on for another two years after that. Well, it lasted uh, 10 years. One of my favorite TV programs. But, uh, yes, I think those writers probably had a very good Rolodex of important people to call to feed information. And what you said is so true. Having Hollywood and science fiction mixed with reality, it's disclosure, subliminal disclosure, as you call it, but it's, there's a purpose. Because if we ever, we ever say, well, that's disclosure, but then people say, yeah, but it's science fiction. So you muddy the water, and you can never have true disclosure. Is that not true? Well, I think what you may have after time is you're going to have an, a cumulative effect. I think that you're going to have, first of all, well, what is it one of the famous physicists said some years ago? I think it was Max Planck. Max Planck. That true scientific progress is measured at one funeral at a time. Exactly. And uh, people stop to realize what that means. That means that the old codgers die off and the young and new generation comes along. And uh, they have open minds and uh, new research and new findings. And then you have progress. And Mel, I think that's probably what's really happening here with this, this matter with the extraterrestrial presence. 
the story is so damn big. It, it, it impacts every aspect of human life on this planet. And when you start telling people that we have not been alone, we're not alone and we have never been alone. And as I point out in my presentations, we have had a long history of intimate interrelationship with advanced extraterrestrial intelligence from the beginning of our history, that they had a hand in not only creating the human race, but they've had a hand in our, our geopolitics, our wars, our religions over the entire course of our history. Mel, I've made a point of, and a kind of a sensitive point, but I've made a point when I speak publicly that I tell people that every major religion on this planet was initiated and orchestrated by an advanced extraterrestrial intelligence. And the people in the audiences that I speak to generally take that very well. But I begin to wonder, you know, how, how do some of the fundamentalists respond to that kind of knowledge? It's a sensitive subject, Mel. You have to tread very carefully. I jokingly say that when I speak publicly, I always check to see if there are windows and doors that I can get out of right. when the riot starts, you know? Exactly. Absolutely. And, you know, let me just tell a story. Many may not know this fact, but I think it's important, like I said. Many people just remain silent about their interest on the UFO topic while at work. I was one of them when I used to be in the corporate world. Not only did you have a distinguished 27-year career with the U.S. military, you also worked for the government, specifically FEMA in Arizona. At one point, you were going to be promoted, but the promotion did not come through, and you thought it could have been your age. But you sued and won a very highly publicized lawsuit and found that the sheriff stated, quote, here is a person, and this is the sheriff, folks, speaking about Mr. Dean. Here is a person who, in my opinion, has an unusual belief. I'm not saying a person can't believe whatever they want to believe, and there are a whole lot of well-thought-of people, scientists included, who happen to believe in UFOs. I don't happen to be one of those people, and in my judgment, I'm not saying it detracts, but it's just something I wouldn't want my organization to be associated with for a variety of reasons, unquote. The sheriff, a man who you respect, admired, and someone who you worked for for a number of years stated that the primary reason for not giving you the position was because you were involved with UFOs. You were brave to take this matter to court. What can you tell those out there who may be going through the same scenario? <laughs> oh, you're... You, you amaze me. You 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 quoted the the sheriff's comments verbatim. Yeah, that <laughs> that that's right off the legal documents. That's exactly what he said. Yes. And my my attorney, you know, yanked him up one side and down the other. My I got one of the meanest attorneys in Pima County, and uh, this young guy got got the sheriff and pulled him in and and got him to open his mouth and admit that. And then when that came out, Mel. Uh, we we went national. I don't know whether we, I was on hard copy for God's sake. Yes, all yes. across the country, and I I was in the National Enquirer I think three times, and and that litigation Mel went on for two years, and uh, it cost me twenty thousand dollars I didn't have, and uh, 
you know, I had to go in debt and then two years of litigation. And finally, the county attorney took the sheriff aside and he said, Dupnik, you damn well better settle with Dean or if he gets us in front of a jury, it's going to cost us several million dollars. Yes. And the county then decided probably the wisest thing to do was to settle with me. But it took two heartbreaking years. I mean, that was a stressful time for me. And after it was over with, I, I, I got the job. I got the back pay. I also got $100,000, what they call tort damages. Yes. But after it was all over with, I went to the sheriff and I said, look, Clarence, I, uh, I can't work for you anymore. I, uh, I don't trust you. I think you're basically a dishonest man. And I says, I'm out of here. And that's when I retired. And that's when I really went public in a big way. I mean, uh, I, uh, I, I've been speaking openly and bluntly about this subject ever since. Well, in a very ironic way, I'm glad the sheriff did that, because if he hadn't been for those two excruciating years, maybe you and I wouldn't be talking right now about this topic, because I think it really fueled you to move forward and say what you wanted to say. Well, I've been accused of ha being courageous. And I, I don't say I'm a, you know, a courageous human being. I, I'm just an average guy. I, I spent, you know, 27 years in the military and I served in two wars. I've been in combat, both in Korea and in Vietnam. And I, I got my, uh, my scars and my wounds and not all of them were physical. A lot of them were psychic. But I, I'm not, I don't think of myself as a courageous or brave person. But damn it, I, I have a, a point. You know, I got angry, Mel. I think that's the thing that really ticked me off. Uh, I got angry, uh, not only at the sheriff, but I got angry at the government that has been lying to its people. And I think that anger is what really uh, kicked me off and got me started. And uh, I'll be honest with you, I'm still angry. When I go off to, uh, you know, Burbank tomorrow, I'm going to be discussing that anger, and I'm going to be asking those who are in the audience and watching or listening to me, damn it, get angry yourself. You people don't have to take this garbage. You, you have to stand up and insist and demand some things that uh, you cannot allow them to continue to lie to you for the next 500 years, and they damn well would. Sounds like the phrase from the movie Network, I'm mad as hell, and I won't take it anymore. <laughs> yeah, that was a classic scene, wasn't it? Right. Well, I guess that kind of, you know, describes me a little bit. You, having had, quote-unquote, a cosmic top-secret clearance in NATO, how do you feel we can reconcile the intelligence community's exclusive, quote-unquote, need to know with the public's right to share in that transcendental knowledge, it seems that everything is held secret for national security reasons. Does this transcend beyond national security? Well, uh, Mel, one of, uh, there's a young man that I have a tremendous respect for by the name of Richard Dolan. Absolutely. Now, Rich Dolan has written the second volume now of what he says will be a three-volume series of a book he calls UFOs and the National Security State. And I know Rich. I, I have a tremendous respect for him. I've been at conferences with him, and uh, we've gotten to be good friends. 
And I, I want to tell anyone who's listening out there that they've got to read Richard Dolan's books. The first volume was Dynamite, and the second one is even better. And then he's planning a third to bring us up to date. And his his expertise and his skill as a historian is superb. He's got material in there that cannot be denied. And uh, I, I advise your your listeners and your viewers to to read Dolan's work and and pay attention. Mel, we have literally become a national security state, and it began in 1947. Actually, it, it, it began in 1913 when they created the Federal Reserve. Correct. And they did that, that what is it, midnight, uh, three days before Christmas, for God's sake? And Correct. They, they voted in and created this nightmare we call the National, or the Federal Reserve, and the Federal Reserve, in my opinion, uh, has been responsible for this recent economic disaster we've all been, been through. And we're not out of it yet. Now, the creature from Jekyll Island. Oh, my God, man. You've done, the, done your homework. Now, the average person out there may not have an idea of what really has been going on. But in 1947, an interesting year that, you know, not only Roswell, but a whole bunch of other things began to happen. They created the National Security Agency. They signed the National Security Act. They, create, they created the Central Intelligence Agency. And we signed a pact with the United Kingdom called the Yokusa Pact, UK-USA, which has bound the British and us together since 1947 into a, a joint national security state. And national security is the, the bottom line, you see. When they passed the Freedom of Information Act a few years ago, oh, there were a lot of us. And Peter Gersten is a friend of mine who thought, well, you know, the, the Freedom of Information Act, boy, we, we, we can begin to get some answers now. Well, nonsense. <clears throat> Every time that anybody would get close to some true answers about some very sensitive subjects, uh, the government would come up with a, well, that's national security, you know, and we can't release that to you. So national security has been the, the end all, the cover up, and uh, the answer to all requests for openness and honesty in, in government. And the American people have literally been taken to the cleaners and it happened, and they didn't even know it. And now uh, the national security state is so established and so ensconced and so established that I, I don't know whether there's much hope for us, Mel. I, I keep hoping that uh, maybe eventually we we can get out of this mess, but it's going to be a while. And I'm sorry to say I'm worried that maybe, as Jefferson said, there may be some blood in the streets before it's over. And we're going to be talking about this, and, and I want to talk to you in a few minutes about the forced vaccinations that we keep hearing in the alternative news. But speaking of Richard Dolan, he was with me a few weeks, a few months ago, and uh, he's going to be back in the next few weeks to discuss the, the new publication. They are, as Mr. Dean says, they are formidable books. They're, they're great. They have to be in your library. Now, speaking of the Freedom of Information Act, don't you think that a lot of the technology, as 
Colonel Philip J. Corso said, a lot of the technology lies in the private contractor's hands. If that is the case, what can the Freedom of Information Act do to, disc- to, to get that information if it's not in public hands, it's in, it's in private hands? Well, that's the whole point, Mel. You, you hit on a major issue there. The, the, the major problem here is that the entire matter of, of alien technology, the entire matter of extraterrestrial presence, literally is not in governmental hands anymore. It has literally become a a private matter. It's become a corporate matter. And uh, the decisions are being made. The money is being made. The advances of incredibly advanced science are being utilized and benefiting uh, a corporate organization that is multinational in its scope. Eisenhower, bless his heart, before he died, tried to uh, to warn us about this. His, I think he made a speech before he left office. We had to beware of what he called a military-industrial complex. Well, Mel, it's not merely the military and industrial complex. Right. Military-industrial and national security complex. And that industrial aspect, that corporate aspect, has become so large that uh, the tremendous advances in science. Uh, ben Rich, before he retired, as he retired, and I think you're familiar with who Ben Rich was. Yes, sure. He, he was the director of the famous skunk works there at Lockheed Martin. Absolutely. And Ben Rich said, uh, as he retired, he says, we are a good 100 years beyond establishment science. And he said, we can take E.T. home. When everybody wondered what the hell he was talking about, it was about the time the movie E.T. was out and about. Mm-hmm. And Ben Rich said, we literally have the ability to take E.T. home. Well, that disclosure and other disclosures that I I bring up and, and tell people about in my presentations, indicates to me that science, uh, and I'm not talking about the so-called establishment science, I'm talking about the the hidden classified corporate science that that exists literally out there. A hundred years beyond us, you know, why are you and I still having to go to the gas station and pay $3 a gallon for gasoline? Beats me. When they have had free energy for over 40 years. <clears throat> Why do we still get on an airplane, <clears throat> cramming us in like they do, uncomfortably flying us here, there, and everywhere, <clears throat> and, and taking away all the conveniences of flying because of the cost of jet fuel, <clears throat> when anti-gravity has been known and used by a select few for over 40 years? Well, that's just how damn bad the whole thing has gotten. And I think the American people damn well need to wake up and start paying attention. It's all economics. Well, let's be honest. Yeah. Good Lord, it goes back to Roman times, you know. The dollar, you know, it, 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 the dollar talks. <clears throat> Money is the, is the foundation of this whole big mess. Yes. 
Look look how bad it's gotten. For God's sake, uh, what, what what is this man serving 150 years in prison for? Bernie Madoff? <laughs> My God. Where's everybody else? Bernie's problem was nothing but greed. I, I, I was discussing this at the last conference over in, in San Jose. And we were discussing with a bunch of people about this, this problem with greed. What do you say to a billionaire who has a billion dollars and wants more? Good Lord, Mel, that's a sickness. It is. It's that, greed. That man needs say. to be in the hospital and under psychiatric care. <clears throat> He's got more money than he could spend in his entire life, and he wants more. Good Lord, greed has been with us since what? Since King Midas? That's right. God, you know, that, that. By the way, you said you mentioned Ben Rich, but let's not forget that he also said it will take an act of God to get this information out. Oh, that's true. That's true. You see, it's all under national security now. And all they have to do is, you know, oh, that comes under national security. You can't have that. And you mentioned. President Eisenhower on his farewell speech. But did you know that he also added on his draft military industrial congressional complex? But they alerted him and they told him to perhaps that he needed to remove that. I call it military industrial congressional pharmaceutical penitentiary complex, by the way. Well, your point is well taken. I agree with you. Now, during your time in NATO, there were incidents where the Russians thought they were flying over their airspace, that we were flying over their airspace, as well as us thinking they were flying over NATO airspace, which almost made us come too close to World War III. Was this one of the reasons why the Soviet Union and the United States created the so-called direct telephone line or the 30-minute warning? Well, in the information that I had and the information that I received from sources that I trusted indicated that the establishment of the red phone line was yes. directly a result of the UFO matter. That once the Russians realized it wasn't us, and once we realized it wasn't them, that uh, our guys and their guys got together and they established that direct red phone. And yes, that's the information I've received, that uh, the UFO matter was the primary cause of the direct line between the Soviet president and the American president. And that red phone line still exists, Mel. Right. Now, we always wonder who the aliens are and where they come from. When we cannot even answer the questions or who we are, where do we come from and why are we here? What are your thoughts on that? Well, when I first began my research, uh, I think a lot of other like I and a lot of other people, we... We were primarily interested in them. Who are they? Where are they from? Why are they here? And what's their agenda? And that was my focus for many, many years. And it is still the focus of a lot of researchers. But over the years, Mel, I've, I've expanded my concepts a little bit. And it's dawned on me that the real question is not who are they, where are they from, and why are they here? The real question is, who are we? Correct. How did we get to be here? And where are we going? And you see, that's why, and that, that's very clearly in my view, why this is a matter of 
of the spirit. The, the spiritual component in this mill has is an overriding thing. Is who who are we as human beings? Who are we as a species and as a race? How did we get to be here? Where are we going? And, and now the word. I'm sorry. Go ahead. The essential question is: Is there a meaning in our lives? And the answer I've come up to is not only yes, but hell yes. There is a meaning in our being here, Mel. The human race, individuals, masses of us, none of this is an accident. None of this just happened. This is not one of those events that just takes place in an evolutionary history of of a bunch of animals. This is a spiritual matter. And... uh that's the thing that has kept me going, I think, more than anything else, is that I realize that the implications of this, the ramifications of it, are so vast that it literally involves human spirit. And I've, I've, I've reached a point, my friend, that, you know, I, I, I'm not a religious person. I, I don't go to church. I, but I think of myself as a, a deeply spiritual person. And uh, I've grown up quite a bit in the last 25 years. <laughs> One would say, well, isn't it about time? You'll, you're <laughs> going to be 81 on your next birthday. But uh, I have grown some, and uh, I think it's been in the right direction. I, I've, I've learned to to remote view, Mel. I've been spending. Oh, you have. Oh, I've been spending a lot of time at that now in the last, oh, the last five or six years. Who was your teacher? Well, I, I've been encouraged and instructed by a whole bunch of guys. Uh, I don't know whether you're familiar with Joe McMonigle or not, but uh, absolutely, Joe absolutely. is he's one of the greatest. He's he's tops. And also, I uh, <clears throat> I had a little bit of a correspondence with Ingo Swan some years ago. Oh. My God, all right. And Ingo is probably, in my view, the finest psychic remote viewer on the planet. And uh, a number of these guys have encouraged me. And uh, <clears throat> I placed myself in kind of a... I became a recluse, Mel, for about five years. I think it was in, what, 2003 that I, I gave a speech at the Bay Area Conference. And I said, this is it. I'm finished. I'm out of here. I'm not going to do this anymore. And I went into seclusion here in Phoenix for about five years. And uh, during that period of time, I got in deeply into, you know, uh, meditation. And I got into remote viewing. And uh, boy, what a an shocking experience that can be. You have a, I had a couple of out-of-body experiences. I had a near-death experience. And when you cross over the so-called other side, Mel, you realize the infinity of, of time and space and the infinity of life. And I'm talking about conscious, intelligent life. And I learned two things. I learned, one, that I'm an immortal being, that uh, there is no such thing as death. And I guess the most important thing I learned in those years with remote viewing and out-of-body experiences is that uh, I learned that there is a God. And when you reach that level, my friend, you you reach a point that 
you don't have any more questions. Uh, there are no more puzzles. There are no more problems. You reach a level of acceptance and contentment that that is almost beyond description. And Mel, that's what's happened to me now. And it's, by the way, Ingo Swan, if anybody who's listening knows of his whereabouts and can put, put us in touch with him, and I know he's not given interviews out. However, we've had a few guests, uh, Mr. Dean, this year, who haven't spoken for over 10 years, some of them. One of them was Colin Andrews, who I believe you know, and others who kindly accepted my invitation and were great guests. So, Inguswan, Mr. Inguswan, if you're listening, uh, I'm inviting you on the show. Also, last week I had a friend of yours on the show who really wants to get in touch with you again. She wrote the book, There Is No Death. Dr. Rauni Kilde, you know her. Yeah. And she says, uh, hello, she wants to get in touch with you. We had a three and a half hour show to talk about mind control and the fact that there is no death, as you well pointed out. Oh, death is an illusion, Mel. And uh, that, that's one of the primary big problems on the, in, on the planet, is that if people could grasp that they, they are immortal, infinite beings, if they could simply grasp that this life this physical life, this this life that with this short, brief period of time in this material universe is is simply a transient kind of event. It's a learning right. experience. We incarnate into the human form for a period of time, and we incarnate primarily to to go to school, to learn, to gr to learn a few lessons. And I think primarily, my primary focus is that we, we come here and we learn to love. We learn to try to figure out what love is, and love is the most powerful force in the universe. And if, if people could grasp that, Mel, what a wonderful world this would be. Absolutely. And I, I had a, a great metaphor from Dr. Kilde. She says that we are the driver of a car. Our bodies is the car. The car needs repairs along the way until the point where you have to get rid of the car, or we call it death. But then we open the door and we get into another car. In our case, we may incarnate in another body, in another dimension, in another place. Would you agree with that? I agree with that totally. And I would add just one thing is that, you know, the immortal, infinite human soul incarnates on planet Earth, but it can incarnate anywhere in the universe. Right. Many of us who who have undergone hypnotic regression uh, have, have come up with memories of lives on other planets, in other civilizations, as other species. So the universe, is, you know, is a, is a schoolroom unto itself. But planet Earth just happens to be one of the more difficult schools. I've been told by psychics and by philosophers and mystics that when you incarnate on planet Earth uh, and you you fulfill a couple of commitments here, man, they give you a silver certificate <laughs> because you literally have been through one of the toughest schools in the universe. Right. Now, you don't get a gold certificate until you actually complete all of your education. And you don't graduate, you matriculate. And then when you get a gold certificate, you don't have to go out anymore. But uh, 
I, I think I might have a gold certificate, but and I or a silver certificate. But I'm hopeful, you know. I've learned a lesson or two this time around, but it hasn't been easy. I I paid some dues. <laughs> I paid some tuition, you might say. You're too humble. I think we'll give you gold. But speaking of discoveries and revealing, some people may wonder why I ask you the following question. But can you define the word apocalypse? Oh, yeah. You really got me ticked there now. Every time mm-hmm. I speak out, I I I, I get ticked off. I guess that's an acceptable term as to the one I was thinking of using. I get ticked off about the fact that a lot of fundamentalists are screaming bloody murder about the apocalypse. Oh my God, it's the end of the world. We're all doomed. The four horsemen are riding. Oh my, my. Isn't that terrible? Blah, blah, blah. And I get so so angry at that. First of all, I'm not a doomsayer. I don't believe that we're approaching the end of the world. And I'm offended by anybody that talks about it and promotes it and advertises it and makes money from it. But I will tell you this. They misuse the word apocalypse. They they talk about apocalypse like, you know, in St. John, the, the book, uh, The End of the World. Well, that's not what the Greek word apocalypse means, Mel. I, I encourage people to go go to an Oxford dictionary, damn it, and and read what the word actually means. It means the revealing, the uncovering, and the disclosing. And what are we revealing? What are we uncovering? And what are we disclosing? Well, here we get back to the whole damn matter again. We're un- revealing, uncovering, and disclosing, first of all, the reality of the extraterrestrial presence, and we're revealing and uncovering and disclosing for the first time in human history, I guess, who the hell we are as a people and as a race. That's the apocalypse, and I'm excited about it. I mean, uh, we're living right through the middle of it, and I, I get really angry about people who who keep trying to scare people and, and and they do it, I think, with a prophet in mind. They keep trying to scare people about the end of the world, that you're all doomed. Well, we're not all doomed, and the world is not going to come to an end. And the apocalypse means something very, very different and very, very hopeful. And I ask people to, damn it, pay attention and inform yourselves. Speaking of uh, fear-mongering, what I'm about to say is not fear-mongering, it's just reality. You are very familiar with the alleged designer flu, swine flu, the, the, the probable pandemic that may be hitting the world soon. You worked for FEMA for many years, and we've, we've received information about FEMA internment camps, FEMA trains, etc. How much credence do you give to this? Well, I give a certain amount of credence to it, Mel, because it's true. Uh, during the years when I was in FEMA for 14 years, uh, my, one of our primary concerns during those Cold War years was a, a, a program we called COG, C-O-G, Continuity of Government. Yes. And, and one of the reasons that they were so concerned about continuity of government was the Cold War, the uh, the Soviet threat, uh, mutual assured destruction, uh, the threat from a 
a major holocaust from nuclear war, and, and it was a real threat. We and the Soviets, for many times over those years, were at each other's throats. We were really at, you know, the moment of pressing the red buttons. But uh, during those years, I, I was involved and took training courses and all on continuity of government, and, and we we developed and and built an enormous number of underground facilities all over the country to maintain continuity of government. Now, those underground facilities grew and grew and grew, and uh, they're so vast now that the average guy out there have no idea the the extent of underground government facilities under his feet. At every major permanent military base in the country, there are vast underground facilities. And we have literally connected some of those facilities, not only electronically through communications, but we have connected them with underground rail systems. Mm-hmm. And that's a reality, Mel. It, it, there's no question about it. It's classified. It's sensitive. But uh, Americans' taxpayers have paid for this program over the years. And yes, we have FEMA built relocation centers. And those do exist. And they exist in a lot of uh, closed-down military facilities, camps, forts, you know, all the... World War II facilities, many of them still exist. During the Cold War years, many of them were developed and expanded. And we've got camp facilities, literally, that are in in place all over the country. Now, what the intention is at the moment of how to use them and who to put in them, well, I, I, I have no idea. I I know that the shadow government exists. I've been away from it for a while, and I've been away from... I I lost my clearance when I retired from FEMA. So I have no idea, other than what I'm getting from time to time, from people who were still involved. And and most of the information that I've been getting, Mel, involves the extraterrestrial presence. Mm -hmm. I keep getting information from old cronies and old friends in high positions. A few of them still, you know, some of the old boys network. And uh, they keep providing me with information from time to time, which I, I cherish. But it's primarily about uh, technological accomplishments, the uh, the separate space program which we have, and uh, the the extraterrestrial reality and the fact that we are literally working side by side <clears throat> with two separate, alien intelligences and uh, that's a reality that the, the people i couldn't they couldn't even begin to grasp the fact that we are literally working side by side with extraterrestrials some some of our government laboratories we uh, we have ets working alongside of our scientists who are those two races what what are they do you know well One of them is the group that met Eisenhower at Morocco in 54. And the stories that I've gotten that I trust from people and sources that I have a respect in is that the gang that met Eisenhower at Morocco 
which is now Edwards. Yes. Were, well, describe them as the original Anunnaki. And uh, that's a that's a generic term, Mel. Anunnaki, oh, I know the term, sure. Anunnaki is a term simply meaning those who came down from above. According, according to Zachariah Sitchin, yes. Yeah, well, that's a Sumerian term. It, it goes back uh, to exactly. Go back to ancient Sumer, but uh, you know, the the Anunnaki, the ones that had a hand originally in re-engineering us as a species, genetically upgrading us, as it were, the guys that you know have been in our midst from the beginning. Uh, were the ones that met Ike, and apparently we have an ongoing and continuing relationship with them. The other group is kind of interesting. They uh, physically look a little bit different than the Anunnaki. They, uh, they're the ones that have been described as the Nordics, the tall blondes. And uh, so we're, apparently we have a relationship with both of them. Now, now how, where are the greys in all of this? I'm sorry? Where are the greys in all of this? Oh, the greys are another matter entirely. <laughs> now, when we're talking about greys, we got to be careful here about whether we're talking about a species or a laboratory product. A lot of little, lot of the little greys, a lot of those little dudes that everybody has seen, or quite a few people have seen, <clears throat> are not a species or a race unto themselves. When the, when we've retrieved their bodies in crisis. And we've retrieved numbers of them. I don't mean just Roswell. I'm talking about Kingman. I'm talking about off the coast of San Diego. I'm talking about crashes in, in Missouri, crashes all over the world. We're talking about little guys who appear to be laboratory products because in several cases, they were found to be absolutely identical. And under the autopsies, they were found to not have, apparently, a reproductive capability, that they did not seem to have, you know, uh, the, the functions that uh, developed species or a race would have. So clone biodrones or biorobots. Well, yeah, biological androids, I guess, is a term I've heard right. used. So. Many, many of the crashes involved the retrieval of those guys, including a couple of them that we kept alive for a very long time at Wright-Patterson and at Eglin Air Force Base in Florida. And uh, they they don't seem to uh, have quite the ability to communicate like some of the others do. Mm -hmm. They apparently are created in a laboratory. They are programmed for a function and they go out and they do what they've been programmed to do and uh, beyond that uh, that's it but they're pretty damn sophisticated they uh, incredibly sophisticated actually uh, to give you some idea that may be the future of uh, artificial intelligence here on uh, in our world well if if our if the supercomputers of now i believe it's it can, it can do, I believe, 213 trillion bots per second, and that's us humans. Imagine where, what a more advanced civilization can do. Well, try to consider what a civilization... Good Lord, man, let's consider this. Not only 10,000 years ahead of us, but consider, a million. consider that there are intelligences out there that could be a million years ahead of us. And some, yes. some of the technology we have discovered in our solar system 
and in orbit around our planet and on the moon and on Mars, we're talking about a type two civilization, Mel. Uh, are you familiar with Michio Kaku's? Uh, absolutely. We're still at type zero. Zero. His, yes, well, absolutely. We're zero, zero, yes. Yes. We're, we're getting close, maybe if we're lucky, in another 10, 15, 20 years. We might really become a type one civilization. But some of these civilizations out there, Mel, are so far beyond us that we, we simply cannot grasp who they are and how they think and uh, the, the, the whole technology of the world that they have created for themselves. When you look at a race or intelligence that literally could be a million years ahead of you, it's almost stupefying to try to consider that. When I speak publicly lately, I've been giving out photographs. Uh, I've been showing photographs, and I've been giving out copies over at San Jose. Yes. I received copies from the Japanese Space Agency of pictures taken by Apollo 13 on the way to the moon. And uh, in that, in those one, two photographs that I distribute, there is a spacecraft five miles long that followed Apollo 13 all the way to the moon, all the way around, and all the way back. Now, five miles long, Mel. Think about that. Think about the technology that can con not only construct something like that, but put it in orbit and man it with a crew. Apollo 13. That's the one that had the accident, because they, the accident was not an accident, Mel. That Apollo 13, and this has come out repeatedly by people who were there, uh, a brilliant French scientist by the name of uh, Maurice Chatelain. Now, Maurice was the genius who created, established, constructed the entire communication system for Apollo, for the entire Apollo series. Now, Maurice Chatelain was present during all of the launches and during all of the flights and all of the retrievals. <clears throat> and before he died, he published information that Apollo 13 carried a small-yield nuclear device that they planned to place on the moon and detonate after they had left. Now, the guys who were on the moon, the advanced intelligent, extraterrestrial intelligence says, no, you're not. You're not going to do that. So on the way, Apollo 13 had a little accident. An oxygen tank blew up. And from the story that we all know about, uh, they were barely able to make it to the moon, around the moon, and they barely made it home. Well, what has not been told, and probably won't be for a long, long time, is that they were monitored and followed closely all the way to the moon and all the way back. And this, these two Apollo 13 photographs that I obtained from the Japanese Space Agency points out, you know, these guys are out there, and Apollo 13 took pictures of them. And this one object is five miles long. And so I use that as an example of consider a technology that can put a, a spacecraft in orbit and, and man it with a crew. 
But according to Maurice, Maurice Stadelaine, he, he figured that that explosion of the oxygen tank was not an accident. It was probably engineered by the, the guys out there, the ETs as it were. And uh, who the hell got stupid enough to want to detonate a nuclear device on the moon? Well, and I know we have to take a break because I want you to have some water and, and take a little break. But on the way back, I want to ask you a few questions. I want to continue this conversation about the moon because you know what's going to happen on October the 9th. The payload left Earth last week. The bombing of the moon on October the 9th. You know what I'm referring to, the lacrosse. I, I know what you're referring to. And I want to hear your, your take on this. Also, I want to talk about Dulce Underground base phil schneider i want to know if you agree with his story and also the national guard website a few weeks ago posted employment internment relocation specialists why is the national guard recruiting internment relocation specialists someone i know contacted the national guard and they simply said oh those are simply prison guards so don't go anywhere we're here with mr robert dean This is Mel Fabregas from The Veritas Show. We'll be right back. Thank you very much for listening. We're going to talk more with our special guest in our members section. Head on over to our website, veritasshow.com. Click on subscribe and join us in the members area to tune in to the second part of this great show. We'll take a short break, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with more.
At the first day, everyone pointed to his country. At the third or fourth day, everyone pointed to his continent. Since the fifth day, we don't even mind the continents. We just see the Earth as a whole planet.